Sean, uh, great to meet you. Um, where are you based? Well, I am based in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm looking out my window right now, and it is dumping snow. So it's it's not quite the tropics and the diving that I've <laughs> that I've come to love, but it's also home in the mountains. Ah, uh, so it, it sounds sounds beautiful. I, I wish we had snow here. We just got um, we call it mizzle. It's it's a, it's a cross between rain and drizzle and uh, oh. fog. So, Sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, it is the worst. It's worst, but it's getting better. <laughs> getting better tomorrow, I think. Sure. Um, Sean, so much to ask you about. Um, you know your career, your projects. Um, where to start? Um, can you tell us um, a bit about your company, Blue Sphere Media, and, and what that's about? Well, um, there's a number of layers to my work. Um, there's sort of the independent commercial slash sort of private endeavors that I do. And that's through my, my, my company, Blue Sphere Media, which I founded God, almost 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, that's been sort of the mainstay of my, my work for many years. And then in the last half decade, um, I've put a lot more of my work into the foundation side to really create a platform to grow and expand the work that I've been doing around the world in conservation. And um, that was Blue Sphere Media. I mean, sorry, that was Blue Sphere Foundation. And, but then we met up with an incredible duo, Paul Nicklin and Christina Mittermeier from Sea Legacy. And about two years ago, we brought the two organizations together. And as co-founders of the new organization, we chose um, the name Sea Legacy for its, its sort of more recognized global uh, brand. And we call it sort of Sea Legacy 2.0. So the three of us are now founders of that. And we took my foundation, which was Blue Sphere Foundation, and we did a name change on it and an entire focal change. And it became the Only One platform. And Only One is focused on building a global audience and a global movement for maintaining and restoring healthy and abundant oceans. So we sort of have two brands now that we work under. One is Sea Legacy, which is more the front lines right in there in the trenches in the ocean storytelling and advocacy and then we have the only one brand which is really around everybody it's inclusive it's all of us coming together as a global community to restore the oceans and so that has been in the last few years that has really been the primary focus of my work sounds um very good it's always nice meeting um like-minded people that you're able to to form something new with i mean i i I think that's sure. great. Yeah, good luck. My goodness gracious. Um, I, actually, the first first film of yours that I saw when I kind of online got introduced to you um, was the film called um, Tiger Shark with, with Hannah Fraser, which was yeah. kind of a stunning film, really. Um, in fact, I spoke to Hannah. Um, we had a chat uh, some weeks ago. Great. Can, can you just tell us a bit about the film and, and, and what made you make that? Yeah, so I'd done a project with Hannah before called Manta's Last Dance, and it was a sort of taking an animal that divers knew about, the manta ray, but for the rest of the world, it was a scary stingray that killed Steve Irwin. And now we all know that's not true, but being a big, big ray, people didn't know the difference. And there was a drive that we'd been working on for almost four years to get manta rays listed on Appendix 2 of CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. But we had an uphill battle because of the the confusion around what this ray was really about. 
and the lack of really any global pressure to protect it. And so Hannah and I teamed up and we did this beautiful underwater dance scenario and it exposed the vulnerability and also the gentleness of this animal. And we took it to the conference and working with a coalition, we succeeded in getting manta rays protected on CITES by 180 nations came together. And it was, you know, back then it was pretty unprecedented to bring a marine species forward and on the first attempt to get it protected. So I was like, hey, we're onto something here. Maybe we can use this type of connection and storytelling to take on some harder issues. And I couldn't think of a harder issue than protecting some of what we call the large predatory sharks, because there's so much um, misunderstanding and fear around these mindless man eaters that to get people to stand up to protect them has, has always been difficult. Back in those days, and this was close to a decade ago, the only story you would ever see on the news about a shark was about a shark attack. And getting shark conservation stories out there was very difficult. So the idea was hatched to say, hey, why don't we, using that same connection and vulnerability, why don't we bring forward these animals in the light that they really deserve, which are curious, sentient beings. And yes, they can be formidable predators, but if interacted with in a way that's intelligent, respectful, they aren't the mindless man-eaters that the media has made them out to. They aren't the monsters of the deep. At the same time, Australia had recently resumed a horrible practice called shark calling, which means they set up drum lines along their coastlines and they start killing all the big sharks to quote, protect tourists. Now, largely the consequence of those drum lines were tiger sharks. And on the areas where they are drumlining, there hadn't been any, literally no recorded attacks on surfers or swimmers by tiger sharks. None of them. And so they were basically obliterating a population, subpopulation of tiger sharks that had literally had no responsibility in any attacks. So we put together the shoot. It took many, many months of preparation to do because uh, let's be honest, it's a tiger shark and it's not trying to eat you, but one mistake by a tiger shark and whatever it puts its teeth around, you lose. And that's fatal. And we could, you know, the last thing we wanted to do was do a shoot where somebody dies and we do harm to the entire cause. So there was a lot of practice and a lot of technique and training and rules of engagement in order to make something like this happen. But when we did it, we brought out with us Good Morning America and World News Tonight because that was the level of confidence we had. And B, we wanted that story to go big. And we had a four days to shoot it. We dropped in the water working with Jim Abernathy and um, we captured just mind-blowing, never seen before seen footage of a swimmer with literally no protective gear, not even a mask and snorkel. Nowadays we see free diving with tiger sharks, but back then there wasn't even that, right? So it was like literally just a human without any, any of the sort of technology or protective devices that you might expect and dancing and even having that tiger shark brush right over her hand with its, its, its chin. And that went out and it reached over 30 million people in the first day. And we used it as a catalyst to drive signatures to a letter to the environmental minister of, of Australia. And we collected more signatures in three weeks than the other efforts had connected over nine months. And we printed this huge stack of papers and we handed it to the minister. And shortly thereafter, they, they ended the shark call. And that was a huge success story for us. It was showing that we can really use media and human connection to drive and be a catalyst for protecting marine species. 
Well, it, it, it was a stunning film. I mean, we've shown it on on, on Scuba Verse along with uh, the interview with um, Hannah as well, and uh, it's had it's had great impact. It it, it, it was super. Um, I mean, the other thing with with the shark issue, of course, is finning, yep. uh, which uh, is horrendous, and we've had so many years of publicity and campaigns. And as far as I can tell, it's only slowing down because of a decrease in shark populations. Um, tell me different if, if, if that's not right. But I'm just looking at uh, a couple of your f amazing films on your website. Um, and quite a few of those are dedicated to, to finning. And there was one particular one that caught my mind, or caught, caught my eye, and it was about the thresher sharks in Indonesia. And mm. the kids, kids on the beach of the local village uh, were trying to save or put back baby sharks. Yeah. Um, very powerful film. What's happened in that village since, since the kids took up, took up the, the fight, as it were? Yeah, that's an amazing story. It's a... Indonesian community that once was sort of traditional fishers and then occasionally they would catch these thresher sharks in their lines and that was you know largely sustainable because they were only taking a few and then a shark fin trader came through the region and these were sort of envoys from China and said hey if you can get us these huge fins because these are big four meter thresher sharks right sometimes five meters um, fins like this right um, we can pay you good money and as a result, the community started taking a lot more sharks and the shark population started to decline. And unfortunately, the large majority, greater than 65%, maybe even 70% of the sharks were pregnant females. So they weren't just taking out one shark, each female had two pups. So they were taking out three sharks for every catch and really, really re-threatening the future of this entire population. And because of overfishing in the area, their options to return to some of the more sustainable things had become really limited. And I was there filming and it feel, felt, you know, very hopeless because it seemed like there was really no awareness whatsoever of the damage that was being done, except for these children. And the children would take literally fetal, fetal sharks, ones that hadn't even been born yet. And the ones that were, you know, close to full gestation, they would kind of pick them up and they would start shaking them and they put them in the water and then they do this zip along the long tail, almost like neural stimulation. And as, at first I thought they were just being cruel and then eventually I started noticing some of these little sharks would start to wiggle to life. And they were almost like doing CPR. And eventually they would release some of these sharks and they'd go swimming into the oceans. And it gave me sort of a spark that our team might be able to make a difference here because there was some level of awareness of these, that these were living creatures and that there was a desire to protect them. So we had a collaborator, a young Indonesian man, um, Rafid, who was really passionate about doing work and he'd been working with us on manta rays and he set up the Thresher project there. And it's taken several years, but with support from international and domestic uh, community and with a, a coalition of volunteers and all that, uh, successfully has managed to introduce a whole alternative livelihoods program into that community um, from terrestrial farming to more sustainable fisheries and we're now seeing a notable decline in the fishery for these sharks. And it's not too late. And there are the sharks still there. And so we are seeing a change and it started with sort of a vision that 
we can we can create a new narrative for this community. And in that narrative, they they sort of become the good guys instead of the ones that are perpetrating the violence against the, the environment and destroying it. So it's still yet to be seen how far that program goes, but at the moment, there's a lot of hope around it. And I'm just excited to see it really coming to fruition. I was gonna ask you, is, is, I mean, it sounds like it's starting to work there, whether, whether that was actually migrating to other communities or not, whether they were picking up the message or, or is it hard to tell? Uh, the message goes out because when you introduce a community program like that, there's the, it's the, it's the coconut calligraph, right? Everybody's talking to their brother and their cousin and everything. And so there's a lot of visibility on this program in the entire region. And whether or not that program comes to each community is not quite as important as raising the awareness of protecting your environment, protecting your oceans and sustainability. So that message of sustainability is going out and it is affecting those communities. And ultimately the hope is that they start to make their own programs and they choose their path. But in this case, the one community was responsible for all the shark fishing. So it wasn't like dozens of communities. We just needed to change this one community. So it's a rare instance where one, one community could be enough to change the future for these animals. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, that's, that's the global message, isn't it? I mean, people sit at home and they think, what on earth can I do? But, you know, it just takes one person to do something simple and it grows. And one should never feel inadequate and unable to do anything you know it's it's never what was it margaret thratcher was she the one said that never doubt the power of a, a group of a small group of concerted citizens to make a difference because in, in the industry they're the only ones who ever have yeah uh these are the stories that happen again and again somebody says enough is enough and they light that one candle and then they gather other people around that flame and that flame burns brighter and eventually you get a movement started. So yeah, these, these are the stories that should inspire us that there is a chance to make a difference. And it, it does usually start with one or a handful of people. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me, was, was there was, was the one defining moment in your career or life when, when you suddenly thought to yourself, I have to concentrate a great deal on marine conservation? Yeah, everyone has their moment in their life if, if they get the calling right. I had sort of two moments that finally came together. One was when I was really young, when I was like six years old. I grew up in Durban, South Africa for the first seven years of my life. And the oceans I knew as a child were quite wild and incredibly abundant. We had the sardine run ripping up the coast every winter and shoals miles long of sardines turning the ocean black with you know, thousands and thousands of sharks and 10,000s of dolphins and, you know, squadrons of Cape Gannets pouring the water, driving the fish up onto the beach. And, you know, in the backdrop, you had humpback whales leaping in the air. And that to me was what the oceans were full of, because as a child, you only see what's right in front of you. And it was when I moved to the U.S. and I started doing little trips to Florida and doing snorkeling. And then later when I began scuba diving at you know, right before university, I went in the Caribbean and I was like, this doesn't look anything like the ocean I knew as a child. The, the reefs were dead. There were no big fish. There were no sharks. There were corals were crumbling. And I realized we were losing a lot in my short lifetime. And sort of then jump ahead to a little bit later in my life where I 
sort of started to get more passionate about photography, diving and, and filmmaking. And it was in the early 2000s, I was in Rajampat with the newly established Masul Marine Reserve, Masul Marine Reserve. And the entire trip we'd seen most incredible reefs in abundance, but no sharks, literally none, not a single one. Mm. And I tried to come up with reasons and excuses in my head, you know, temperature variances and seasonality. And I wanted to believe it was something else. And it was on the last day we were motoring back from our last dive. And we see this nondescript wooden fishing vessel parked in a mangrove area, right in the boundary of the, the new, the new reserve. And we go to check it out. And immediately I'm hit by that smell. And it was the smell of uric acid. And if anyone knows um, when you, when you hunt sharks, they release that. And ever since I was a child visiting the sharks board in South Africa, where they would have these freezer rooms full of dead sharks. And I would just look at the horror, that smell, that really pungent smell stayed with me. And I, and I never forgot it. So as we approached, I was like, Oh, and then as we even got closer, we saw the deck was strewn with small triangular shaped fins with numbers on them. And the deck was blood soaked and flies were buzzing above the deck. And I realized what had happened here. They were shark finning and I could see sort of glistening in the water beneath the boat, put on my mask and looked beneath the water. And I saw the bodies of freshly finned juvenile reef sharks rolling back across forth with the current and the surge on this gorgeous reef surrounded by mangroves. And the juxtaposition was just horrific. It was like, this was the scene of the crime. And I grabbed my camera, slipped in the water and I started filming and, you know, my heart was breaking because I realized I was watching the demise of the future of the, one of the last great epicenters for marine biodiversity. And I, I remember I came back on the boat and my, my, my partner down there who was doing the work, uh, Andy Miners, founder of Masul, handed me a piece of paper and he translated it. And it said, basically it was a permit to fin sharks for 30 days and it cost $30. And we estimated they would break over that period at least 300 sharks. So it was 10 cents a shark. And I'd done enough travels in Asia to know that those very shark fins were selling for $100 to $150 a kilo. And so these, these communities for just a fraction of that value were wiping out the future generations of that entire system. They're robbing their entire future. And I was, I was enraged and I was crying. And I was like, I just remember I looked up at the, at the sky in that moment. I realized for the rest of my life, I was gonna put an end to this practice because this was the reason why we were losing our oceans, this exploitation. And that was my moment. Strong moment, yeah. It, it's, and, and I, I think we've all had our moments, but <laughs> that's a particularly um, poignant one. It's, yeah. I mean, likewise, not, not to the same degree, but um, certainly around the UK uh, as a child, I just remember so much marine life. You know, the, in the summertime and seasons, the beaches used to bubble with fish. Uh, mackerel and mullet and dolphins would come in and the seabirds would be everywhere. And you just don't see any of it at all um, today, which, which is... And the hard part is, is telling people what it used to be like because, you know, it's, it's, it's history. They're not really that interested. It's, it's, it's also the shifting baselines where, you know, it's like you, 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 come, you move to a town, right? And you're surrounded by prairies and forests and all that, where, depending on where you live, right? And then over time, houses go in and neighborhoods form and roads get cut in. And then another development goes up here in a development. 
And before you know it, you're living in the suburbs and then you're living in the herbs. And you, you kind of flash back to those days when you first got there and you, you forget that this all used to be farmland, fields or forest. And now it's literally just dense urban centers. And you try to explain to someone else how it was and they don't eat, they can't even comprehend it because all they've ever known was the suburban that they moved to. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. You know, throughout, throughout the world, there's there's just so many um, tragic conservation stories or stories of things disappearing. You know, everything with oh yeah, overfishing, uh, pollution, climate change, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are occasionally some good news stories, um, although mostly they're very small. Um, have you come across recently any any major significant success stories uh, just to uh, help us move on? Yeah, I mean, there's, ah, there's really important work happening sort of on the sort of local, regional and national scale. And, you know, local story, you know, the work we've done with that Missoula Marine Reserve that I talked about in that juxtaposition moment, uh, they've had three to six hundred percent increase in biomass over just a seven year measurement period. And they've been doing it for 15 years. So we don't even know what the total is over the entire time. 25 times now more sharks inside the reserve than outside. Every single dive you see sharks. Whereas when I went there in the early 2000s, you didn't see a single shark. Manta rays pouring over seamounts, sea turtles filling bays. And you know you couldn't even get close to a sea turtle back in the day. So even on a sort of a local scale, the protection there has had a massive impact from an environmental aspect. And that has generated all kinds of tourism income for both local community, but also for dive operations that come in and the, of course, the missile operation. On a, a regional scale or more of a, a provincial scale, we succeeded working with the entire government of West Papua of which Rajan Pat's a small part to get the province declared a a conservation province. And why is that significant is that instead of most places where the assumption is you can extract and take and destroy unless you are, unless it's specifically prohibited, it shifted the entire equation the other way, which is you can't unless you get specific permission too. And in doing so, they also went a step further and declared 70% of their forests as no, no forestry, leave it intact, which it's the largest intact rainforest in all of Asia. And they protected 70 to 80% of their mangroves, um, actually 60 to 70% of the mangroves. And it's the largest mangrove stands in all of planet earth. And it has the most biodiverse reefs on planet earth. And they have consistently been adding and adding more areas to the no take and protected areas on the reef systems, as well as creating new standards for sustainable development and then rescinding all kinds of palm oil permits which have been one of the biggest banes to the development, uh, to the protection of forests, particularly in Asia. So we're seeing big shifts happening as well, right? And then you move to our side of the ocean and there's been a huge focus by a number of organizations in, in our organization on the Eastern tropical seascape, which is basically an area that reaches from Ecuador all the way up to Mexico. And you have a bunch of nations in there that have critical critical areas like Galapagos and Cocos and Malpelo and Cohiba. And one by one, we've, got, we've worked with those nations to get massive increases in the, the levels of protection, the size of Galapagos, 
the size of Cocos, a huge, huge chunk of Panamanian water. Colombia is now working on expansions and then creating an entire system whereby you can connect them all using marine corridors. And that's all happening right now. And people have been working on that for almost two decades, but we've hit a breaking point and we're breaking through. So we are seeing really important successes and we need a lot more because we're running out of time, but people are starting to wake up and it's just a matter of how many people can we get on that bus, on that train, so that we aren't just the ones starting from a single focal point, but it becomes a big wide attack on the issue. Yeah, it's, that's great to hear. That's fantastic, in fact. It's, it's I mean, we, we could do the same here around the UK and Europe uh, and Mediterranean, et cetera, but we don't. I mean, in the UK, as, as an example, uh, I forget the figure, but we have hundreds of marine protected areas but they're all paper parks. You know, yep. people are still allowed to trawl or bottom fish in, in those areas. Um, the, there's nobody to police it. There's, there's, it's just there on paper. And it, it pleases people to hear, oh yeah, we've got all these protected parks, but they're meaningless really. Yeah, the challenge you face is there is a, a narrative about the noble fishing industry and the industry puts forward these images of a you know, captain with his little hat on, his wide brim hat, his little raincoat, and a small little boat, and he goes chugging out, and he catches a little chunk of fish, and he brings it back, and he puts it on, on the cart and wheels it off to the market, and that's where people buy it. So there's this noble narrative that pervades so many of our cultures in Europe, and it's quite prevalent. And the reality is completely different. You have these large commercial vessels with these massive winches and huge nets and big, big towers. And they take these nets and they scrape up everything and they're destroying the substrate, right? And that message doesn't get out. And so there's a lot of ignorance within the community about what the reality of these fisheries is and how destructive they are. And we've got to break that narrative. We've got to open people's eyes to what they're really doing. And there's been resistance to that. And until that happens, until people understand that there's a genocide happening on their coastal waters, and it's not just some old fisherman with his, with his jacket and his son out there. That will continue. So it's about exposing the truth and creating a new narrative, which is, can we get back to something a bit more sustainable, more healthy? Yeah. That needs to happen. For sure. I mean, one of the issues that, that keeps promoting it is advertising on TV. Yep. You know, daily, yep. almost every, every other program, uh, you must eat our fish products, sustainably caught, uh, good for you. Uh, you know, it's going to make you a better person. And we get so little looking, looking at, oh, <laughs> you've got a fly there. No, I just, it was going to buzz my camera. Yeah, no worries. Um, but we get so little of the real information, as you're saying. You know, the advertising just yep. sucks people in all of the time. And, and in that process, the, the other issue you have is genericizing fish, fish and chips. Now, each of those is a species. That's like saying I'm going to have meat and, and, and potatoes, right? No, you're, you at least know what you're eating. You're having lamb or beef or whatever, right? There, there is an animal in there, a species in there, right? And though that is entirely unsustainable in the level it's happening today. With fish, it's just fish. It's like we're talking one of the most diverse systems in the world and you boil it down to fish. And especially like fish and chips, really you're often talking about uh, spiny dogfish, shark. 
you're eating shark. Like what? Like, do you really know you're eating shark and chips? And if you're okay with that, if you understand the biology and the life cycle of these animals and the importance to the ecosystem. And so we really have to open people's eyes and communicate the reality of both how they're being fished, that narrative of the noble fishermen, and then what they're actually eating. Because I think in the U.S., over 70%, and this is in the U.S. is, is better, over 70% of seafood is mislabeled. Uh, I'm sure it's the same here. Um, yeah. I know cod and chips, which is kind of the fish and chips shop staple here. Uh, it's very rare that you'll get cod uh, as inside your batter. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, personally, I don't know. I haven't eaten seafood for 40 years. But it's and, – and I look occasionally um, at fishmongers, and what I see on their shells, I mean, it's, it's just tragic, really. Uh, uh, stuff that I remember diving or as a kid saying like this is now like this and it's accepted norm and stuff. Everything's a fraction of the size it used to be. Yeah. I see from some of your, uh, some of your films, uh, you, you've got um, quite big names, um, celebrities on board. Um, one I'm looking at now is with uh, Richard Branson. As, a, yes. as an example, are, are these people kind of easy to get on board or, or do they take some persuading to, to get into your films? <laughs> um, it's, more, it's really that they're very busy, busy people and they, they get a lot of requests for a lot of issues, right? And so it's not that they don't care, it's that where do you put your time so that you can actually make a difference? And yeah, it's difficult to get the time and the focus for a lot of these celebrities. Uh, the good news is, is the work we do has a really strong reputation for making an impact. And we've developed some amazing relationships over the years with players like Richard. And so they're, they're there in support and they wanna add their voice because they really care. And it's, it's, it's wonderful because they bring an audience that isn't just environmentally focused or nature focused. They're, they're industry focused, they're business focused, right? And we need to shift people like that. That is where we, we can make some of our greatest change. And when you've got, when you've got a celebrity on board, do you, do you find your audiences actually increase? Uh, it, it can be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't do it for that reason, but it does. It, it, it is successful in bringing new people to the, to the issue. And so you can't overlook the power of that and the importance of that. Yeah, fantastic. Do, do any of your films get televised? I mean, the ones yeah, that I, I, some of my work is, uh, I've done a lot of work on, especially through Blue Sphere Media, I've done a lot of work on, you know, National Geographic, BBC, CNN productions and things like that. But we've done a, a, some really important work. We did a, an entire series on sharks with CNN back in the day called Planet in Peril. We uh, did Racing Extinction with director Louis, the Ho Louis Hoyas. Uh, that was a documentary that went out in 2000, December 2015, and we reached 200 countries in 44 languages. In that time, it was the most viewed environmental documentary ever. And uh, that was a huge, huge sort of launching point for further work. 2019, I did a series with Netflix called Tales by Light, which is still on Netflix, uh, which follows storymaker change makers who use their camera and their storytelling to really drive impact on a either environmental or social issue. 
And uh, two of those episodes focused on my work uh, from Mexico to Indonesia. So yeah, there's been, there's been a, a lot of opportunities around that as well. We do news, we do all kinds of stuff. It's, you gotta hit it on all fronts. No, fantastic. It's, it's um, I mean, in this country, it's, it's not always that easy to get any environmentally based program uh, funded. Uh, you know, unless it's, it's, it's there's still quite soft core, I think, but uh, but it's improving. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> John, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for taking the time, um, and wish you luck with all all your future projects. Thank Just you. one last thing before you go. Um, lots of young, particularly young people. Um, you can buy a camera now for next to nothing. You can take it diving, amazing quality. Um, and I often get lots of questions, you know, how do I, how do I start by making a conservation film uh, in my local area? Mm -hmm. uh, any advice you'd give to people? I think a lot of people sort of start backwards. They think of the image and then try to build a story. And the, the flip side is, what am I trying to accomplish? What's my goal? And then you work back from it. What is the story behind it? So let's say I want to, I'll use a terrestrial example. Let's say there's a stand of forest in my, in my, in my town that they're gonna to try to develop, right? And I want them not to do that. Well, why is it that, what is, what is the forest? What is important about the forest? Well, usually there's some forms of species and animals and services. People hike in that forest, there's trails and all that, right? So. What is the story of that place? What is the narrative that's so special about it? Get the narrative, get the story, get the voices because you need voices. And then from that, what are the images that support that story? And when you work your way backwards, it becomes obvious how to build it. It's often when people start with, I love the pictures of it. Well, that isn't gonna change anybody. It's the narrative that really shifts people's perspectives. So start with the narrative and then build the imagery around it and make sure you're focused each step of the way on what is the end goal that you're trying to achieve. Perfect advice. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I see, I do see so many films uh, that try to rely on the images and they hope the images are going to persuade people, but it's not. It's exactly the saying. It's the story. It's the people telling the story. Uh, it's the narrative. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Sean, um, thank you again for your time. Uh, sure. Um, I'll sign off there and um, say goodbye. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks again, Sean. Bye. Okay.